This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's really good to see all of you here today. And uh, what a challenging passage we have before us, especially because we didn't have Bible study on it. So I hope that you pay uh, particularly close attention to what we are saying today uh, as we look at today's passage. So let's go to God in prayer as we ask Him to help us understand His Word. Uh, Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we really pray that you help us to understand 2 Samuel 14. Understand how it is relevant to us today and what it says about you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I remember over Christmas, I had uh, a lot of good conversations talking to people over the dialogue meetings and the caroling sessions, Christmas and New Year events. I remember having a really interesting conversation with this one guy. Uh, he was a non-Christian. And he was saying about how he felt that uh, a person's childhood uh, really affected uh, his future. And how a person's childhood, his family, his family background would affect who that person eventually became to be. So we had a very interesting conversation, quite an extended conversation, and we talked for quite a while, and I eventually said, well, you know, actually as a Christian, I believe that God determines who you are eventually, what you do, and your destiny. And at that, he was kind of a bit shocked, because I think one of the things that uh, uh, we take for granted, especially for people who don't quite believe in God, is that, we have ultimately the freedom to choose our destinies and that if there are plans that I have, ultimately they are my plans, not God's plans. And that if I have my own plans, my plans will win out over God's plans. Now today, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 14, we see three plans at play. But we also see God's plan within the structure of the passage. But to, in order to understand 2 Samuel chapter 14, we need to understand it within the broader uh, story or the broader historical narrative of what we've been looking at so far in 2 Samuel. So previously, if you look up here in the slide, I sort of summarized it for you. In chapter 11, King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and to cover up his sin, he committed a worse sin because he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan, sent by God, confronted King David. King David confessed his sins and repented, but God said in judgment, uh, still some things had to be, uh, had to happen to David, and, and one of them was that his son from the adultery would die, the sword would come to his family, and the adultery that he committed in private would be committed against him in public. So remember the responsive reading that we just read? Now, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we start seeing the unraveling of David's kingdom and his family and the fulfillment of God's word against David. So Amnon, the firstborn heir to the throne, rapes his sister, his half-sister Tamar. And David doesn't do anything. So Tamar's brother, Absalom, next in line to the throne under Amnon, takes revenge and kills Amnon and goes into exile outside of Israel. Okay, so if you look at this map, at this point in the story, Absalom is, is, is actually outside of Israel in Gersha, right? His grandfather was actually a foreigner, and he's gone to take refuge in his grandfather's house outside of Israel. Now, three years have passed since that dreadful night when Absalom murdered 
his brother. And as we look at chapter 14, right, verse 1, and uh, it said, Joab, the son of Zuriah, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. Now the word here, David longing for Absalom, is not so much like, um, you know, he was in love or something, but he was very conflicted, David. I think that the, the message that we're supposed to get here is David was very conflicted because in his mind, he knew the right thing to do, which was God's justice. Absalom had murdered Amnon in cold blood, premeditatedly, with two years of planning. And because of that, David, as the king, as the judge, should have imposed justice and Absalom should have been executed because of murder. But he longed for Absalom because in his heart, he also loved him as a son and he was not really ready to actually execute judgment upon him. Now, on a personal level, David was conflicted. But on a national level, David was also conflicted because as we will read, as we have read in 2 Samuel chapter 14, this this Absalom character was a popular person, right? He was like a bit like a pop star, right? He was no one as handsome as, as he was, right? But he was also popular with the masses and he was next in line to be king. So at a national level, I think David was conflicted because would he do the expedient thing, which would be to pardon Absalom and welcome him back into the kingdom and therefore ensuring succession and peace within the kingdom or would he risk civil war by trying to impose justice on Absalom? So David here was confused. He longed for Absalom. And into his longing, into his confusion, comes the person of Joab. Now again, how many of us remember who Joab was? Very few of us, right? I mean, he's like, we come across so many characters in the book of Samuel, we're kind of like big lost, right? Who is this Joab person? We've got to look back again. But Joab actually is a bad man. Right? If you do remember him, he's not a good character. A Joab was instrumental in killing Uriah, the husband of uh, Bathsheba, if you remember. He was complicit. In fact, he was more than happy to do David's bad work, right? He was the, the one who was willing to do the dirty work for David. And if you remember even further, much earlier on, all the way back to the early chapters of 2 Samuel, you remember that Joab also, because he was threatened by Abner, remember Abner was from the house of Saul, the military commander was defecting to come to David's side, and Joab felt threatened by Abner, so he, he murdered Abner. So anything that comes from Joab is a shady business, right? You know, you must be, you know, whenever we see the word Joab there, we're starting to feel a bit, a bit uncomfortable, right? What, what is this character up to? You know, it's just like watching a movie. You know, it's like one of those people who always shows up and you think, okay, something bad is going to happen here. Now he's, he comes into the picture, into this conflicted position that David finds himself in, and he's working together with a wise woman from Tekoa. Now, the word wise woman is actually not a positive thing because the last wise person that we found, the, 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 the word that is used to describe this woman, was Jonadab. And Jonadab, back in chapter uh, 13, was the person that advised Amnon 
how to get into a position to rape his sister. So the word here, wise, has very negative connotations to us by now if we're reading through the book of Samuel. Because the, the last person who was called wise actually created the situation which led to the whole problem that we find ourselves in now. The rape of Tamar by Amnon. So shady Joab and the shrewd woman come together and they put together a very crafty plan. And what a crafty plan it was, right? Because this woman, very shrewd woman, earthly shrewd, very earthly wise and cunning, they come together and she presents a story to the king of how she is a widow. The husband has died. The two sons have been out in the field and they had an argument and they got into a fight. One son kills the other. Now the law says that the remaining son must be punished with death. It's a very open and shut case. There's nothing complex to it. It's almost like Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel went out to the field. They had an argument about the sacrifices, the offerings to God. They had a fight. One kills the other. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But, as we will see, the shrewdness and the cunning and the craftiness of Joab and this woman turned the verdict around from guilty, guilty, guilty to a full pardon. So what is the crafty story that, uh, that was brought to David? And actually when you, when you actually spend some time looking at it, you really marvel at how crafty it is, right? So let's turn with me, uh, to me to verse 6. Uh, she says, um, I, your servant, had two sons. They got into a field with each other in the field and no one was there to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant. They say, hand over the one who struck his brother down so that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. Then we will get rid of the heir as well. They will put out the only burning coal I have left, leaving my husband neither name nor descended on the face of the earth. So what was a, an open and shut case, a very clear case? The woman muddies the water. She says, look, actually, the clan, the family, are not really interested in justice, but for money, for greed. They want to get rid of the only heir of my husband so that the property and all the wealth of my husband doesn't come to me anymore because I have a son who bears his name, but goes back to the clan. So she appeals to David and says, look, this is, if you execute my son, this is not justice, but it is injustice. It is greed. Then she says, oh, look, you know, He's the only burning coal that I have left. And what a sad, sad picture it is, right? It's like <clears throat> most people have um, a big, big barbecue of many coals. I, I only have one little coal giving me light and warmth. And you're, and you're threatening to snuff out that little coal that I have left. Because, you know, he's my only son. He's the only one who brings me comfort. He's the only one who brings me light. He's the only one who can provide for me when I grow old. So if you execute justice, it will not be compassionate. It will not be compassionate for me. But the third thing is, if he is killed, if he is executed, <clears throat> then there will be no legacy for my husband. My husband's name will be gone. There will be no one left of my husband's line. 
So step by step, injustice, greed, compassion, the husband's legacy, she turns around what is a very straightforward case to her favor. And David, as we see, goes down that that road and, and is, is sort of tricked by the, the, the cunning of Joab and this woman. Look at what it says there in verse 8 to 11. The king said to the woman, Go home and I will issue an order in your behalf. But the woman from Tekoa said to him, Let my lord the king pardon me and my family and let the king and his throne be without guilt. The king replied, If anyone says anything to you, bring them to me and they will not bother you again. She said, Then let the king invoke the lord your his god to prevent the avenger of blood from adding to the destruction so that my son will not be destroyed. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, not one hair of your son's head will fall to the ground. Now, this woman has really earned her money, right? You can see why Joab went all the way to Tekoa, uh, which was many miles away, to bother to enlist her help. Because not only has she managed to present her case and reverse the verdict on her son, but slowly and surely, by the use of her very cunning words, not asking for too much and not being too brash, she's able to extract from David more and more and more. So the first thing that David says, so if you look up here on the slide, right, what's the first thing that David says? The first thing that David says is, go home, right, go home. Uh, go home and I will do something for you, right? He says, um, I will issue an order on your behalf. Now, that's kind of a bit vague, right? What order is he going to issue on your behalf? How much is he going to, to give? It's kind of like, okay, I'll do you a favor. I'll do something for you, but I'm not telling you how much I will do for you. So the woman manages to extract from him and says, look, if you do this, you will be without guilt. And, and if you don't, if you do this, you will actually pardon my son fully. That's what I really want. I want a pardon. And even though she manages to get David to pardon her son, that's not enough. She wants an oath before God. She, he, she wants a vow before God to ensure that David is really, really trapped into this position. And he falls for it head first, right? Because... Not only does he pardon the, the, the son, he says not even a single hair on his head will be harmed and he swears by God himself. So from being in the face of the law, totally guilty, David has now moved to swearing an oath before God that nothing of this child will be harmed. And that's where the trap is sprung, right? Because verse 13 and verse 14 are like the center part, centerpiece of the trap. The woman then said, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? When the king says this, does he not convict himself? For the king has not brought back his banished son. Like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways that a banished person does not remain banished from him. 
She accuses David of double standards, right? being two-faced, or being a hypocrite. Because he's saying, look, if you are willing to pardon my son, then why will you not pardon your own son? And in fact, you're worse than, uh, than, than, than what the, the relatives are doing to me because your sin is not just against a woman alone, the widow alone, but your sin is against the whole nation of Israel. God's people. And look at the language that she uses, right? She says, Why then have you devised a thing like this against the people of God? That means that she's actually saying that David deliberately and knowingly are actually sinning against the people of God. And the reason he's deliberately sinning against the people of God is because he's going against God's will. Because she says that God does not want to banish people, but instead God wants to bring back people from being banished. Now, what cunning and crafty words these are. Because sounds perfectly reasonable, sounds perfectly logical, based on the story of her son, based on what she said to David. Sounds like the logical thing would be to invite uh, Absalom back into the country and to pardon him and allow him to become king in the future. But it's actually nothing logical or reasonable about it when you actually study and look behind the stories and what the woman is really saying. So look at what the woman is saying. In her story, the one, the make-believe story about her son, there's enough points of contact with Absalom's situation but it's actually very different. You see, Absalom didn't accidentally kill Amnon in the field when they were just happened to be arguing, you know. You know, he didn't push him and he fell down and he hit his head on a rock or something. Absalom spent two years planning a very complicated and cunning plan in order to kill his brother Amnon. There were no greedy relatives and Absalom is not the only burning coal in the kingdom. The reason why Joab wants Absalom back is only because he's popular and he's the heir to the throne. There is no compassionate reason to pardon Absalom. He's not the only heir and something that he's done is terribly wrong. And also, for her to say that it is God's will to bring back those who are banished and to reconcile those who are outside of his kingdom is not also right. Because God's law was very, very clear that what Absalom deserved was not pardon, but death. Now, as we read through the book of Samuel, again, we're meant to compare this story with the prophet Nathan's story. Because you know, when the prophet Nathan came to speak to David, he also told David a story, the story about the poor man and his lamb and, you know, the rich king who had many lambs but took the guy's lamb and killed that one lamb and, you know, it was a very sad story, right? But actually, when you compare the two stories, they are completely opposite in terms of their purposes and their goals. You see, if you look at it, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Prophet Nathan's story was actually told to arouse David's conscience, his conscience to do what was right 
against his feelings, his feelings of love for Bathsheba, his feelings of pride, his feelings of ego. So when his conscience was aroused, he went against his feelings and he did what God's will was. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, is the complete opposite anti-Nathan effect. Because here David is conflicted. His feelings are going against his conscience. His feelings tell him to pardon Absalom when his conscience as the king is telling him Absalom deserves death. And what Joab and this cunning woman are doing are arousing his feelings to go against his conscience to do what is wrong. So this story in chapter 14 is actually the anti-Nathan story. It doesn't come from God. It's actually coming from man to go against what God wants. Now, the fact that David is so taken in by this story in a way tells us of David's longing for Absalom, his confusion, his conflict to do what is right. And as we read on, we see that Joab's crafty plan actually works. Let's turn to me to verse 21 to 24. The king said to Joab, Very well, I will do it. Go bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell with his face to the ground to pay him honor, and he blessed the king. Joab said, Today your servant knows that he has found favor in your eyes, my lord the king, because the king has granted his servant's requests. Then Joab went to Gisha and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, He must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. So David realizes that this plan is not from God but from Joab. It's come from political and earthly wisdom, not God's wisdom. But he still compromises. But what does David do? David compromises the crafty plan of Joab. It's a compromise plan. He knows in his heart that Absalom's sin is so great that he cannot be completely pardoned and welcomed back into the royal family to be heir to the throne. So the compromise is he can come back into Israel, he can come back out of exile, but he's not coming back to Jerusalem to be totally pardoned, to receive the kingdom. He's sort of like in a halfway limbo situation. So there he is, he's back in Israel, but he can't see the king. He's not part of the royal court. Now, as we read on, we see that this plan of uh, David, this compromise of David, is not satisfactory to Absalom. And Absalom, after waiting two years, <clears throat> becomes a bit fed up. Right? And this uh, Absalom, you can see his character because he sends for Joab once, Joab doesn't return his phone call. Sends for Joab again. Joab doesn't show up again. So what does he do? He vandalizes Joab's uh, fields, right? He sets it on fire. That's a bit extreme, right? It's a bit like, you know, someone, you know, someone doesn't want to contact you, you know, set his car on fire, right? And uh, finally, Joab comes to see uh, um, Absalom. And what does Absalom say? He plays a very high stakes game, Absalom. He said in verse 32, Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king and ask, Why have I come from Gersha? It would be better for me if I was still there. 
Now then, I want to see the king's face. If I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And he, the king kissed Absalom. Now, I think verse 32 is very striking because Absalom has the, 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 I guess the, well, I can't think of the right word. But he is so full of himself that he says, if I'm guilty of anything, let me be put to death. But he is guilty of something. He's guilty of murder. He should be put to death. But in his eyes, he doesn't see it. He can't see it. And he thinks that he is worthy to be fully pardoned. I think also, in some ways, he is betting on the weakness of his father David. Because his father David was soft and weak on Amnon when Amnon raped his stepsister at Hamar. So he's betting that he will be weak and soft when it comes to him as well. And by the end of the chapter, his desperate plan pays off fully because King David kisses Absalom. He is restored to the royal family and allowed back to the family. All is forgiven. The slate is clean. Now we have three plans here, right? The crafty plan of Joab, the compromised plan of David, and the desperate plan of Absalom. And by the end of the chapter, Humanly speaking, everything has seemed to be resolved. Nationally, the heir is back in the kingdom. Uh, the popular person is back there. There will be no civil war. There will be a, a clean secession. It will be a happy conclusion. But we know that God's judgment is still hanging over David and the family. And I think that the writer gives us a hint that actually... Within the seed of these three plans, the human plans that we make, Joab's plan, David's plan, Absalom's plan, God's plan is still going ahead. In verse 25, right, we are told about Absalom. And actually, we don't need to know about Absalom. Right? And it's kind of like a bit meaningless why this is here. But when we ask ourselves, why is verse 25 to 27 here? It actually is here to tell us that all will not be well. God is still actually working in the background. So look what it says in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his, his wisdom, no, his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it and his weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That's very heavy. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. Now, when we look at what the writer has described, uh, Absalom, the terms that he uses, we sort of get a hint that he's not really a very good king material, He's just a good looker. In fact, you could sort of ask yourself, are these the qualities of a good leader per se? He's just really good looking. He has no blemish from head to toe. In fact, all he has is a really good head of hair. Now, you could, you could sort of 
say that that reminds us of, of, of a recent presidential winner of a certain country who just won elections, right? He's got a very full head of hair. And as we read of this, um, this person, the question that we are starting to ask, ask ourselves is, why? Why have David and Joab spent so much time and effort to pardon this person? Because this person, by the looks of it, is not a very wise person, doesn't have a good relationship with God, is not someone who is seen to be, in God's eyes anyway, someone who's worthy. In fact, it's very ominous because the last impressive person who was appointed king was a terrible king. So look back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9, which is up here. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. Why was he so impressive? Was he smarter and wiser and more godly than the Israelites? No. He was more impressive because he was a tall man. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, they ran and brought him out, and he stood among the people. He was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the Lord that the man, that's the man that the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. So the last physically impressive person actually didn't do a very good job at all. In fact, he did a terrible job. But the thing that clinches it is in verse 27, right? He had a family. He had one daughter, and he named the daughter Tamar. Tamar, after his sister, who was raped by Amnon. You see, Absalom never got over the rape of his sister by Amnon. And it wouldn't take much for you to also imagine that he never got over the fact that his father never did anything about the rape of his beloved sister Tamar. And that deep inside Absalom, he would have harbored resentment against his father, King David, for not doing anything about the rape of uh, Tamar, or not even stopping it before it happened. So we see here that actually a lot has been happening over the last 10 years, right? So chapter 11 to 14 cover 10 years. So if you look up here, right, next slide. David committed adultery, murdered Uriah seven years ago. Amnon raped his sister five years before, uh, um, ago, Absalom killed Amnon, and two years before Absalom returned from exile. But through all of these things, through these ten years, we remember that actually there is one plan that is holding the whole thing together. There is one thing that's holding the whole thing together, and that's 2 Samuel chapter 14, right? which is what we read for our responsive reading. God had said very clearly, to David through the prophet Nathan. The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your home. Your own, sorry. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. So here as we look at this, this chapter, we're not meant to look at it just on a surface level and say, okay, yeah, you know, there's Joab, there's the cunning woman, there's David, there's Absalom. We're meant to see it at a deeper level and see that actually God is the one who is pulling all the strings together behind the scene and actually bringing about 
his promise of judgment on David. And here the seeds of God's plan are revealed. That Absalom, the one who is bitter about Tamar, Absalom, the handsome one, he is the one who is going to be the instrument in his evil and wickedness to bring the sword to David's house and also to bring public adultery to his wives. Now, I remember when I was younger, I used to play a lot of chess. I, I mean, I was like, I guess we didn't have handphones then, but I used to play a lot, a lot of chess. I used to play so much chess. I used to have chess sets confiscated in class all the time, right? I mean, I used to have chess pieces uh, stuffed down my shirt, all sorts of things, right? Anyway, um, so I remember playing chess and I, I played competitive chess for my for my school as well. But sometimes, you know, you meet someone who is so good that for all your plans, uh, the person you're playing against seems to have like 10 steps ahead of your one. And no matter what you do, they just seem to know what's going to happen uh, so that you're checkmated at the very end. And I think this passage actually is a bit like that. Within the flow of the story, we see that God is the sovereign and omniscient God who knows all things, knows all our motivations, knows what's going to happen, and He causes His plan to win out. Now, I think as a Christian, as someone who is on God's side, God's sovereign power and His plan winning out is something that we take great comfort in. In the same way as David's plan to bring the sword to David's house is fulfilled. So in the same way God's plan to send Jesus to the cross to die for us is also fulfilled. I remember uh, last Sunday Andrew Wong gave this sermon and he gave this quote. And I thought, oh, this is such a good quote, I must use it. Right? He said, you know, God has promised that everybody will be resurrected if we believe in Jesus and I in Him. And he said, there's nothing in this world that a good resurrection cannot solve. And I thought, that's really true, isn't it? There's no problem that we face in this world that a good resurrection cannot solve. And if God's plan is for us to be resurrected, then, you know, as we see in today's passage, that God's plan always comes through, then what great comfort there is for us. Because if you're on the right side of God's plan, then you will always come out to be on the right side of history and on God's side, which is the most important thing. So I think that as we look at today's passage, when we look beyond all the complicated plans of human beings, we actually see that God is at work. And it actually encourages us to keep holding on to God because in the end, His plan will overcome all the plans of the peoples of this earth. And as long as we are on His side, we will be alright. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that behind all the political maneuverings and machinations of Joab and the compromises of King David and the desperation of Absalom, that you were at work that within the plans of human beings, your work, your plan is winning out. And therefore for ourselves, dear Father, we pray that even when we see the plans of this world, the things that are happening around us, that we will put our faith in you and you alone. For we know 
that though we may not see it, though we may not understand it, your plan, your master universal plan is at work and will bring to fruition our salvation and our resurrection, a new heavens and a new earth. And we pray that today's passage will give us more faith and more strength because we know that your plan will always work, win out. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.